HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is supported by Bon Bon, a charming neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, serving eclectic cuisine with Midwest roots. This week on Meet and Three, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Jan Cease Robinson and Hugh Johnson. We'll talk to Jan Cease and Hugh about wine and the world atlas of wine. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Jan Cease Robinson and Hugh Johnson are wine writers and journalists. That sounds a bit pedestrian. <laughs> Jancis and Hugh collectively are the most awarded, influential, and respected writers in all of wine. Their awards, books, articles are too numerous to mention. We're here to talk to Jancis and Hugh about their World Atlas of Wine, the eighth edition, which is now available. Hugh and Jancis, thank you for joining the great Pleasure. nation. Great to be here. So I want to give our listeners a little context. Both of you have a very deep, rich history in wine, but I have the pleasure and luxury of having both of you across from me. So I want you to give us a little background on your journey in life in wine, but in the context of when you met 
from that point on. Because the baby at the end is the atlas, which That's we'll right. get to. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember Hugh? I do, vividly. I, I, we, we met at a Canadian wine tasting. It was Ontario, wasn't it? In, in Canada House in London. That's right. And this was before the world believed that Canada even made wine. And I somehow got caught up in a bit of an interview afterwards. And I said that that was the worst wine tasting I'd ever been to. <laughs> you and said that out loud? I did. Okay. And it was true. <laughs> Completely true. I'm sure you were right. Uh, the, I immediately got uh, a message from the Canadian government, I think. It was the longest fax I've ever seen. It came rolling out of the machine. <laughs> <laughs> Spooling. Challenging me and saying, right then, come to Canada, see our wine region, taste our wines, and I politely said, no, thanks. I've tasted them. Uh, what Jancis year was that? that? 1976. 76. Mm. So anyway, Jancis and I were together at the tasting. I think we would sort of sympathise with each other's <laughs> palate damage that had been done. Right. And I suggested that we went out to lunch together. Very fast of me. <laughs> uh, and we went to a, a lovely old traditional Spanish restaurant to repair the damage. Um, and uh, we've known each other... Ever since, mm. collaborated on all sorts of things. Not even off and on, Just on and on. <laughs> so, what happens? You you have a nice lunch. You make a nice relationship, and well, you the, the, continue the, to stay friends. And where's the evolution of you know all the writing and? Well, the wine world was really different in those days. There wasn't well, the whole mass of people, of the wine groupies and wine writers and, Nothing and that. so on. So if you found one, <laughs> you stuck to it. Right. No, we, I found, uh, we found each other quite sympathetic anyway. Absolutely. And Hugh was very kind to me. I think he recommended me for my very first uh, national column in the London Sunday Times. They were looking for a new wine writer. Mm -hmm. And I'd only been writing about wine for four years, um, but you very kindly said I was the one that they ought to hire. No-brainer. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, before you met, you were writing and Hugh had an impact on your next job, which sounded like an important one? Oh, it was amazing for me because I went straight from editing a wine trade journal that was read by about three and a half people <laughs> right. um, to having Where this... Where is that half guy now? <laughs> uh, to having this, this column um, in, an, uh, in the, the biggest circulation quality newspaper in Britain. So, oh, yeah, 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 which was, which was wonderful. Um, and, and as I say, I was deeply, deeply grateful. And from that moment, I just went freelance. So I've, been, I've worked for myself since right. 1980, which we'll has talk been wonderful. Mm -hmm. And Hugh, you had written a book or two by then at least, right? Yes. I, um, I was, everything seems to be 50 years old this year, <laughs> except me. Including <laughs> our ties and shoes. <laughs> the, 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 um, my first book was just called The Four-Letter Word, Wine. Right. And I got that published, but I, I needed an advance. I was 26 years old. I loved wine, but I knew very, very little about it. I had to travel, and there's no way. I couldn't afford to go to Europe or anything like that. So I went around publishing houses saying, I need an advance for a wine book, a £1,000, please. They looked at me, and I was mad. They said, either you know about wine or you don't. You can't, you can't <laughs> need an advance. Somebody took so, a chance. And... 
the reason somebody took a chance was there was a the best-selling sort of coffee table food book, Robert Carrier's Great Dishes of the World, ah. which actually broke records. You know, people used to whisper, this book has sold 30,000 copies and colour and glamour. So a friend of mine suggested that I go and talk to the publisher and say I wanted to do the, the wine equivalent uh, uniform the with it. The template was there. The template was there. And it was the, successful. Uh, had to produce full-page colour plates and things. It worked out well. Uh, and, it, and it worked very well because luckily, and then another friend, a, a wonderful writer called Sybil Bedford, who's, who's um, a novelist who is passionate of, was passionate about food and wine, she was published in New York by Simon & Schuster. Mm. She introduced me to, wait for it, P.G. Woodhouse's editor. <laughs> <laughs> Big moment of my life. <laughs> that's great. Uh, and so I, that's how I came to New York. So at that time, so Jan Cease, you were writing the column, and Hugh, you had gotten your books published. Well, um, Hugh, the first edition of The World Atlas of Wine uh, which Hugh put together in much more difficult circumstances. Yeah, no, we'll, than, we'll get to that. Now. Yeah. I'm not but that, that, was, that was the book then. And right. so obviously I was very aware of, of Hugh's so that, scholarship. That's where I, I want to... There are, between this eighth edition and um, going back to when you met and after, there were some significant um, things that happened. You wrote the first atlas. You, not at the same time, wrote um, the companion to wine. You continued to write books. You still do the pocket guide. Mm. Um, you went on later to take advantage of the internet and do that. Um, what am I missing? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I did, know there's a lot in uh, there. Uh, quite the, a lot, because uh, I I wrote really quite a few books before being asked to come up with the Oxford Companion to Wine by Oxford University Press. Um, and, and a lot of television, actually. That, right. The 80s yeah, yeah. were the decade of television, right. first for me, and then did Hugh did series. his history series. Yeah. Right. So I, I've cl always claimed to, make, to have made the world's first television series about wine, and no one's ever challenged <laughs> that claim. And that was in, in the 80s. I did three series of something called The Wine Programme, very imaginatively entitled, right. um, for our Channel 4 in Britain. And then Hugh did a, a series on, which went with his lovely book on the history of wine. And when I look back to the 80s, and I've still got the diaries, I cannot imagine how I fitted everything in. Because <laughs> I did those three TV series, which meant travelling an awful lot. You mean your life in general? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... And I think you could handle it. Still. Two children, brand new house that needed everything done right. to it, mm -hmm. uh, books, uh, columns. Uh, and i tell you, I think, why I managed, how I managed to fit it all in. Because there wasn't, there weren't emails <laughs> there was less no distraction. emails, exactly, you, yes. You were not staring at your phone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's something to that. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I look back wondering how I got to write The World Atlas of Wine, which I did within about two years with huge research. So I looked at my diary for all the years 1970, 1971, and there was no mention of writing in it at all. I seem to be going out to dinner and lunch <laughs> all the time. I just don't so see it what wrote I did. So it. it wrote itself. <laughs> <laughs> There's no meetings or places to be or whatever. That, I guess that's the magic of the atlas. Um, 
you know, I'm curious. There's no wine television right now, and those were such glorious well, shows. There's some, the movies, yeah. and now there's a companion TV program, but there's not, you know, companions to a book well, or I, experts. I've, yes, I've made quite a lot of, of television about wine, and I, I've come up with the conclusion that the trouble with wine as a televisual subject is that nothing much moves and your cameraman gets completely fixated on the bottling line because it is just about the only thing no, that, moves. that moves. Um, and, and that you can't really do that, that dr- slightly fake drama thing of who's going to win the cook-off, you know, or, mm. or, or transforming raw ingredients into a dish. That just doesn't happen mm. with wine. It all happens much more slowly, uh, transforming the grape so into a liquid. So it's slow and a little boring. Yeah. And that's why I think... Um, some works because they 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 concentrate on people and, right. and a competition. The competition. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really like the cooking show. Yeah. The winner yeah. I, I was lucky enough to hit on the cultural side of wine, the history. I mean that that justified me going all over the world and showing people historical sites, interviewing boffins of various kinds. And, um, and so lots moved. Uh, it was a companion to the book too, which is always, yeah. you know, on public but television. That came later, yeah. Actually, yeah. But, but, yeah. Uh, but Jan, didn't you have to find sponsors? No. Channel 4? No, no. They, no, I did. Uh, no, no. <laughs> that was they, part of it. Yeah. You will do it, but you <laughs> find sponsors. I found the most generous sponsor right here in New York who put, one, put up $1.5 million for my series. I remember reading about this. Who was it? Am I allowed to say? Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> It, it unless it's a, unless it's any detriment John, to them. John and Harry Mariani, who were then coin, coining money, Banffy, right. um, sparkling, uh, yes. sweet Ambrusco. Italian wine, mm-hmm. the lamb, um, and they said we we want to pay back. You know, we wine has made us a fortune. So, so but that was a great line. Hmm? They they had been in the business successfully, and they wanted to pay back so the, and the, give it back. And great, you were the right person to. They're a great family, but what I, this sponsorship business has a sting in the tail because I went around all sorts of wineries, the modern ones in particular. I could meet Robert Mondavi and talk about his winery. Anywhere I went, I said, meet Mr. So-and-so, and this is his winery, until I came to the Banffy outfit, and I was not allowed to say what it was or who they were really? because they were the sponsors. Ah, <laughs> ah, so you mean that was the TV station that said you couldn't mention yes, them? Yes, now it's the opposite. Yeah. Mm. You know, how much social media, where can you plaster oh, yeah. it, the association. Yeah. It's, I felt cheated it, that I couldn't give yeah. them credit. Mm. In support of them. Mm, yeah. um, we'll talk about, you know, the, the Atlas in a few minutes, but I want to get your um, take on what's going on in wine right now. Um, I pulled a couple of things both of you said, and it's a good setup for you to tell me where things are at. Um, Hugh, you, Hugh, you said the past half century in wine has been a maelstrom of change. Jancis, you've said that this particular universe is in greater flux than I've ever known it in 44 years about writing wine. So I think we're at a time where those two you know, statements say, so it's a very broad subject, Take it where you want or where you can. How has the wine landscape changed since publishing the first atlas? And then when the two of you came together, um, when you put the fifth atlas, I mean, there's the list is endless, but mm. what are the things that... Well, the first thing is enlargement. 
Okay. So many places make wine that they never used to, and and which is more exciting. It's also true of good wine. Right. <laughs> there used to be a limited number of sources of really good wine. There is no limit now. You know, the ways of making it have been mastered. The technology is in the can, uh, and people have studied for through their lives now. There are young people who have grown up with as scientists with knowledge of wine. In the old days, you, you did it the way your grandfather did it, basically. You know, to be right, sure. there's a that, movement back to totally that. Totally gone. And hence, every kind of enlargement and improvement. That's good for the consumer? Of course. Oh, yes. Now, I'm sure there's way more supermarket wine and mass-produced wines, but you're talking about regions, yeah, But the, the supermarket wines are much better than they were. Okay. Oh, yes, yeah. Jancis? Well, of course... The, the, the warming summers have made a huge difference to the shape of the wine world. Mm. So you've now got wine industries in places like Belgium, Holland, Sweden. England. Couple, uh, well, England has been a massive beneficiary. We can now ripen grapes sufficiently. And in the southern hemisphere, they're planting ever closer to the poles to find, uh, or up mountains to find cooler and cooler spots. So all of those have played a part in... in enlarging the world of wine. But I would actually um, pick up, Hugh, on the grandfather business. Uh, one of the reasons that I think wine is in, the wine world is in such flux today is that, say, in the 90s in particular, all over the world, everyone was trying to produce the same sort of wine. Mm. There was this tiny handful of international grape varieties. Um, everyone was pulling out their local vine types. Don't we have a term for that? <laughs> Don't we call that the parkerization of wine well, to some extent? Maybe. There's, there's a, the other aspect where he was so powerful that everybody wanted to please one palate, which is unhealthy, really. And so the, the, everyone was going in the same direction. And everyone pretty much agreed with what wine quality was. Nowadays... There are multiple voices about uh, governing our tastes, not least the consumer who has a, a voice. You know, it's, quite, it's been a, a real change around for us. When I remember the days when, as a wine writer, what you wrote was sort of in, on stone tablets, handed down to a grateful public. You know, nobody ever argued. Now, of course, you have the two-way conversation, which is much healthier, but it certainly keeps us on our toes. You have... Uh, the great resurgence of indigenous grape varieties, sort of alongside the Lochavor food movement and heritage tomatoes and apples and all the rest, um, you have a younger generation who wants to make their mark and not do things the way everybody else did. So we've got the emergence of natural wines, which is a whole massive subject on its own. But there well, are lots well, and lots of different... Uh, ways of interpreting wine quality. As for what happens in the vineyard, I would argue that the, the fashion, the trend nowadays, is to, to revert to what two generations back did and to be deeply and perhaps unfairly critical of what one generation back did, which was take advantage of mm -hmm. agrochemicals. And I mean, after the war, we needed quantity not quality and there was all that sort of efficiency and new discoveries and let's you know stainless steel tanks and make it all very very efficient and everything and now of course it's all wholemeal 
uh, don't use any agrochemicals, quite rightly, for the, for the planet. Uh, find out exactly how your grandfather or even your great-grandfather used to prune the vines. Uh, so quite a ch- quite a change. That's part of the flux that I was referring to in that. Quote. Yeah, I mean, there's a part that's what old is new now. Mm. And, you know, mm. after World War II, all that agro farming mm. business. But I think you can sum back. up a lot a lot of it in just the word education. You know, people, for the first generation of wine co- uh, winemakers that actually went to college, right? And, and that's travel. a long, long time right. ago yeah. now. Yeah. With extensive study programs. Yes, yeah. Yeah. You know, in every aspect. Um, but there are all, if I may jump in, there are all, uh, now in the old days, no Burgundian wine producer would venture out of their region, hardly out of yeah. their village. Mm. Now it's absolutely de rigueur that the young generation goes and does a harvest in New Zealand and another one South on the Sonoma Coast. And whatever. Sure. So they've got their friends all around the world that they're, they, they see as equals, not inferiors. Uh, uh, talking of New Zealand, bear in mind that with the first edition of the World Atlas of Wine, New Zealand was like a little postage stamp. There was nothing to say. Yeah. There was no wine. <laughs> That's so obvious. You'll talk about some of the changes. Um, I, I want to dive into some of the things that you brought up because those are all the topics that are very much what's going on and what's terrific are addressed in the book. You know, when you talk about, you know, what's new, those are the issues. Um we talked about a little, but wine writing and criticism has changed through the oh, years. Massively. I think yeah. you alluded to the fact it's been democratized. Mm. It's not three, four people. Mm. Um, is that a positive effect? I think so. Very, very much so. Yes, it creates a great muddle. I mean, you know, uh, people who don't want Fair to word. dive right into it and hear everybody's point of view would rather hear one person's point of view. I'm talking about the average reader, right. not, not the wine geek. So there is still a role for leaders. I mean, I would describe myself as one of those because every year I produce Your lovely a, 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 a long list of the wines that are available. And that simplifies things for people who aren't geeks. Um, and I think that's what was needed. I, I think you've earned that spot, but <laughs> the opportunity's been open for anyone to blog or do a podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, somebody said to me, uh, oh, what's the point of having this atlas when you've got Wikipedia, you can look mm. anything up. But Organization. Organization and um, taste and analysis okay. and synthesis and that's, that's a true fact. That's, in my opinion, worth saying. Mm. That's the thing to emphasize. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, online you just get this mass without any... I, I, I agree. Mm. Um, what about social media. We, we talked before how it didn't exist and you were not distracted raising kids yes, and, yes. you know, social media, phone, you know, all of that stuff. Um, has that had an important effect on wine? Disseminating oh. information, getting oh, people... Well, I mean, Jancis' website <laughs> is a go-to place for wine lovers, wine lovers around the world. But that, here's, that, the, that social here's a funny thing. The companion... I, I mean, the Atlas, you need it because it's organized, but the website offers you, you know, something, a multitude of, you know, information in different ways. And news and two, right, two different and, functions. And tasting notes and, and all that, yeah. So yes. I guess so we're, we're positive about it. Th- I oh. can't, I can only see one obvious negative that, about the social media and wine, which is 
um, particularly relevant here in New York, I think, uh, fadiness. And some, some wine is hot. And all the Somme's get onto it, these so-called unicorn wines. And the, the price just goes zooming up because you've got tens of thousands of people looking for these you know, 30 cases of wine. To that point, yeah. restaurants used to be temples. Mm. Mm. Chefs became rock stars. Yeah. Now sommeliers are the influencers. Mm. And to that point, if they push something, they have the followers. And, and they do tend mm. to um, hunt in a pack. They, 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 they do tend to follow very much similar trends. So they have a very strong influence. Funnily mm. enough, in Britain, I would say... The Somme's are much, much less influential. Wouldn't you agree, Hugh? Oh, certainly. We don't have this great pack of names that are following. They're not no. No, positioning them? themselves on social think, media. The way. I think wine buyers in New York... Um, it's, it's pretty would, crazy yeah. here. I yeah. can attest to that as a follower and yeah. doing this show. I thought they were just followed by other Somme's. <laughs> and I was... I, my son is in London now. I was there about a couple of months ago, and we ate at some really fine restaurants, got to meet the wine people in the programs, and these people are just not heavily involved in Instagram or other things. I'm like, you should do this, but th that's their business. Are younger drinkers to that point, like millennials or around there, are they changing wine? I mean, you just gave an example, because a lot of the new Psalms are 20, 30-something. Yeah, I think they've given the opportunity for so-called the natural wine movement, and that is a way of... of Owning a space and, right. and saying, well, it's it's not class growth Bordeaux and it's not Grand Cru Burgundy and it's ours. So there's a connection between millennials and natural wine. I think so. I mean, that's not to say that, I mean, the, they would be the first to admit that the first, their leaders yeah. were, well, some of them are now dead. And you know, I, that's I agree with that. Can we, Hugh, Jancis, are you okay if we kind of stray into natural wine sure. or can I get a, an opinion? I know you cover it uh, in the book. Um, I don't even know what question to ask. I mean, <laughs> where are we at? You know, with now, what's your take, your opinion on it? How do you view it? Go on, define it. You don't have to define it. I won't define it, but as a phenomenon. <laughs> I th my sadness about it is its polarizing nature. Hmm. That there are too many zealots around who won't give conventional wine the time of day. And it's a real pain to go into a Paris wine bar and be lectured before you're allowed to it's an uh, usher them for, order a glass of it's wine. It's usher them for sure, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I don't, I'm slightly impatient with conventional winemakers who dismiss all natural wine, assuming it is all faulty, because some of it is faulty. Um, quite a lot of natural wine, to me, smells of um, kind of mouse, mice right. and hamster mm. cages and that kind of thing, which apparently is a compound, this mousiness, to which only a third of the population are susceptible. I must be very susceptible. So my theory is that... Susceptible in picking it picking up? Picking it up. Yeah. Uh, so you and I can have the same yeah, wine, I may not, not get yeah. any of it. Exactly. And, and that's true of all sorts of, of right. aromas, actually. We're yeah. more sensitive to some than others. So my theory is that, that the natural winemakers, an awful lot of them are probably in the third of the population that, that right. can't actually <laughs> smell this mousiness. There are some very good natural wines... But as the trend has got going, there have been an awful lot of faulty ones. And that's, for instance, my lovely colleague, Julia Harding, fellow master of wine, 
was at Bordeaux's sort of academic centre a week ago. And the, 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 all the academics and researchers there just dismissed natural wine and really? even orange wine completely out of hand, probably because they'd had two faulty ones and those are the only mm. ones they'd ever tasted and just said, you know, we're, we're worried that there's a whole new generation that's learning about wine through natural wine and doesn't realise what a wine fault is. They're being brought up with faulty wines. But I think it would be good for them to open their minds a bit and taste more of them. Yeah. And, and the ones I admire are, say, someone like Vanya Cullen, who's huge, she's Australian winemaker of the year at the moment, um, runs the family wine estate in Margaret River, Western Australia, converted to organics, then biodynamics, has gone pretty extreme, saved the soil, all that kind of thing, um, but makes really conventionally excellent wines, but was intrigued by the whole idea of making a white wine like a red wine with extended skin contact right. with the grape skins, and has made the most lovely uh, wine she calls amber, which is um, you know coming out of this rather con more conventional stable. I think it's great when the old hands have a go at some of these new right. techniques. Well, but I, you, I would make a more general point, really, that I'm, I'm all in favour of exploration. You know, I, I love introducing alternative wines and new wines to people, uh, whether I really love them myself or, or not, because I think opening up, uh, making pe people's palates open to new suggestions... It, the whole thing was was rather sort of put on hold by Robert Parker. You know, he said, this is a 96-point wine, whatever the hell that made, meant. Right. Uh, but that was correct, and that was what you should be looking for. Well, thank goodness all that's gone, or most of it's gone, and people are free to follow their own taste, and they will taste a pet nat or, or something like sure. that. Say, I rather like that. Sure. And nobody's there to say, but that isn't good wine, or... Why should they? You know, if you like it. <laughs> but isn't it hard to argue the principles of organic farming, sustainability of the land? You talked earlier about almost like a permaculture, you know, <laughs> I don't society. Think it's, yeah, I don't think it's hard to argue why not using pesticides that ruin the soil mm. is, is mm. I mean, that's sensible. And, right. And it's, it's a movement that's happening throughout farming, not just viticulture. Uh, biodynamics is, whoa. Uh, I mean, even the, the most fervent followers of these cosmically... Uh, Cosmic's <laughs> a good word. <laughs> cosmically governed techniques find it difficult to explain exactly why they're doing things. All they can point to is how healthy the vines look and how healthy the soil looks. And the wines, by and large, do seem to me to have some sort of extra life to them, which oh, yeah. may well be just because they're putting so much care into it. It may mm. have absolutely nothing to do with right. their nettle compost or their dandelion and oh, burdock. On the other hand, it may. It may, <laughs> we just don't know. I mean, incontrovertibly, the, um, any Burgundian domain will tell you that when the moon is waning, I think, um, the, the wine in the barrels is calm and that's the time to bottle. And when it's, when it's waxing, it's all shaken up. And, and So biodynamics goes way into that. But yeah. those winemakers were following some kind of cycle. Yeah. Oh, you know, yes, you're taste on a, on a full moon. You know, you invite all your friends around to taste. Um, so when you talk about natural wine, is it fair to say not 
connected to it, but moving to the next topic, that there has been a movement towards restraint in wine. Oh, yes, that's been a really big thing. I mean, we, I'm talking yeah. whether it's Bordeaux, sure, Burgundy, sure, sure, sure. California, no. Australia. Massively, massively. And that, Even Napa. Yeah, well, yeah. that's another topic. Yes, some, some Napaites. <laughs> but um, we have a network of consultants around the world for the Atlas, and we obviously, when we undertake a new one, we always ask them, okay, what's changed? And it was very noticeable when putting together the seventh edition, the one before this, that pretty much everyone around the world reported, as though it was special to their region. Wines are being made much fresher now, and, and mm. you know, they, they're not being left on the, the grapes, aren't are being picked a bit earlier. Uh, we're not looking for lots of oak, lots of alcohol. And it, that was a worldwide trend. Although, I, you mentioned Napa. Yes, there are some lovely practitioners uh, that are making, and actually have probably continued to make, beautiful wines, rather than the sort of great big turbocharged monsters. Yes. Like a Kathy Chorus. Yeah, exactly. Spotswood, now Mathias and whatever. But um, I can absolutely understand why the people who continue to make the fruit bombs in Napa do continue, because they have this tame market that's very well healed. Silicon Valley is generating new fortunes. It's very much still there. And the, the mailing lists, the allocations, the boasting that you're moving I up I came it. into the world mm. under that mm. and tired from it. Mm. And now, you know, I've moved on. But, Hugh, is it just because people got tired of these heavy, unctuous, it was just too, too much to drink? I mean, it was enough already? They're fed up with paying the prices for new barrels, too. because that was The <laughs> price is crazy. You know, they were mm. buying barrels at heaven knows what price and and some of them even using two lots of new oak to ruin their wine i think australia <laughs> the syrahs were very big and i think yes. people got tired and they're making wonderful wines now they are and it's very interesting talking about this new the new wave the, the younger generation of wine producers um especially i i find it a real schism in in australia where you know the australians went mad for screw caps because it would deliver mm the wine in the bottle that they put in the bottle, no no interference with poor quality corks. And nowadays, there's this, um, the, 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 the young ones, the younger generation, are to differentiate themselves from the old guard, are using corks, natural corks, and sort of covering them with wax and all the rest, <laughs> which is very funny. It, really. it is funny. I'll put in a word for screw gaps. Yeah. I love them. You know, I love them professionally. Oh, oh yeah. I get so tired of the cork and the corkscrew. There's no issue to you with a screw cap. No. no. Not at all. Even fine wines, older wines. Well, you know, we haven't had the sort of 20-year ex- no. experiments with first growth. And no, and nobody... Although they're doing them, aren't they? Yeah. They're starting they're they're to. They see, yeah. They're starting to. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question, and then we're going to take a break. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about the eighth edition of your World Atlas of Wine. Um, the last question kind of plays into what we've been talking about. Wine's been numerically scored for a good chunk of the the growth years i have a sense that both of you have a different you know view on this um why is it important or why is it not important Hugh why is sh- the arch Hugh, why should we not pay attention <laughs> to scores and how should we be able to identify a good wine i not remember when I, when um <clears throat> 
Robert Parker and I had the same publisher, and I remember when he showed me a manuscript in 1978, because that was before Bob's first book was published. And Dan Green was my publisher here. And, and he's, he said, here, I've got this manuscript. What do you think? And I read it. I said, there's some of the most sort of heartfelt, sparkling, lively, tasting notes. Uh, terrific. But I, what I don't understand is we've got the vintages here and then we've got numbers down the side. What are they? He said, they're the scores. I simply said, you can't score wine. <laughs> You cannot score one. It doesn't mean anything. You may have to in a when the I mean Jancis is a very modest practitioner of the art uh, because she is uh, very often she takes huge numbers of different wines and differentiations <coughs> terribly important to her and her readers. Right. Uh, but I have never scored a wine, and I simply wouldn't know where to start. It's as simple as that. And I see scores as a necessary evil, really. Um, I, I understand Hugh's feelings that it, wine is sort of something so tenuous or ever-changing or pulls all sorts of different buttons and on, mm-hmm. are you scoring a Beaujolais on the same scale as a, mm-hmm. a Bordeaux right. or, a, or a Napa Cab or whatever. But, of course, I've been... my website's been going for uh, since 2000, which is quite a long time. And through that time, we've seen the cycle of demand for fine wines go on fire. That's cool now. Mm. Uh, when people need guidance quickly, uh, and you know, there's, there's just a, a few cases of a wine available for a, few, a day or so, and they need to make decisions. And so having a score helps them. So I try and make the tasting notes as useful as possible. Well, I, I think you made a good point. I think some people taste wine and put a number against it. I think you have a lot more context. <laughs> you know, I, I th- you know, you're trained. You've been a source. You know, you've been honest. So if someone turns to you, you know, they know what they're getting. So I, I believe it could work both ways. Uh, Hugh, I don't disagree. <clears throat> well, that. Scores on the Parker system <coughs> particularly useful to investors, you know, because that is a and the, to fine wine traders. Yes, uh, to, well, to the trade. There comes yeah, right. indeed, because you know they have a spreadsheet. There's not many. You can't fit a lot of adjectives on on a spreadsheet. Right, but you can put a number, and they they get crunched, and they are closely related to the ultimate price of these wines. And yeah. you don't have to speak English. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, when the Chinese came in and wanted, decided they'd go to buying uh, futures mm. in wine, they were a just huge help. The numbers. Everyone mm. understood the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's an interesting point. Mm. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Jancis Robinson and Hugh Johnson. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about their eighth edition of the World Atlas of Wine. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is supported by Bon Bon, a charming neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, serving eclectic cuisine with Midwest roots. Bon Bon is a place for friends and neighbors to come together and enjoy good food, good drinks, and good company. The heart of Bon Bon is filled with love for the community of Lawrence, Kansas, for the staff and suppliers that put food on the table, for quality local ingredients, and for fun, creative dishes. Learn more at bonbonlawrence.com. 
heritageradionetwork.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guests, Hugh Johnson and Jancis Robinson. Can we talk about the 8th edition Willingly. of the World Atlas <laughs> of Wine? So, we talk about nothing else at the moment. So, <laughs> well, I made you talk about wine. Uh, but a lot of it is covered thoroughly in the uh, Atlas. Um, to date, the Atlas has sold upwards of 5 million copies. 4.7, to that's be honest. That's upwards of five chances, okay? This morning's figure. Um, that's, that's remarkable um, in the category anywhere um, and the type of book it is. So congratulations. Um, Hugh, I think it would be interesting if you told people what initially compelled you to start a project like this. It, it, it was a, an offer I couldn't refuse. Okay. Uh, Somebody yeah. said, write an atlas? Or? Yes, it's exactly the case. Uh, Why did we need an atlas then? It started like this, that my very small startup publisher in those days, Mitchell Beasley, James Mitchell, a friend of mine from Cambridge. Still publishing the book, right? Yep. The, the imprint is. Right. Um, they, 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 every publisher needs a backer of some kind, and they somehow got Philip's uh, Dutch match um, map people, cartographers, Atlas publishers, to back them. And, really? and, and they said to, to James Mitchell, we can sell lots of roadmaps, that's easy, but we want thematic maps, maps of things that haven't been mapped before. And James, having taken their shilling, said, OK, should we start with the universe? <laughs> <laughs> and he produced this great... The, the Atlas of the Universe, written by the astronomer Patrick Moore, uh, which was an enormous seller. Then he was casting around for other things, sure. and he and I were friends. And he said, Hugh, what, is there any sort of proper real connection between uh, wine and maps? And I said, what? We could make maps? Of course. I mean, wine is absolutely... It's about geography. You know, what... Geography in a bottle, we always geography say. Geography in a bottle. Yeah. Clearly an, an objective or the objective to take the two things meld them together and well, make them because useful. because I was a friend of his and I, was, and I wrote about wine and he wanted to create maps. That's how it arose. And, and then I said, well, only if you can afford to make Ordnance Survey standard maps. They have got to be totally believable. You know, all the contour lines, every little cottage in the vineyard has got to be there because that is, there's no dodging the, 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 the reality with that. You know, if you're writing a chapter and you there's something you don't know you talk about something else but right. if you're making a map there's no hiding <laughs> there's no hiding place yeah, something's missing so it was now. very expensive and he committed i think it was a hundred thousand pounds in 1970 it was a huge, huge sum. Mm. uh and the result was you know i worked with the cartographers um and we came out with these jewel-like maps that, that still have their validity so from the from the idea of publishing it to the actual publishing, what period of time are we talking about? 
Well, when you're having all those lunches and dinners. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Traveling yeah, all that's a good point. There's no, there's no accounting of this. <laughs> I can't imagine who actually wrote it. But actually, it was, there weren't an awful lot of words then. You know, I felt that the, the words on the page were really sort of like extended captions of the match. Right. To, the, to the maps. You know, the reader says, why am I being shown this map? And the text tells him. It doesn't go an awful lot further than that, which is not the case now, because Jancis takes you right into the subject. Well, we'll get to that, but you were true to the concept of what an atlas is. Indeed. You know, it was very visual. Yeah. Um, you published four editions on your own, and then the yeah. fifth edition, um, Jancis came aboard. Why did you bring her aboard, and why did you agree <laughs> to the project? I guess that was an interesting time. Yeah. Well, why I brought her aboard, because the idea of a fifth go-round on my own just appalled me. Uh, Semi-done with it? <laughs> like, I'm not doing this on my own? No, it, okay. felt, it felt lonely. <laughs> and and uh, I had this tremendous esteem for Jancis and her work, I loved her as a person, and um, it was just uh, t total no-brainer. But for her, was she going to join in this enterprise? Uh, <laughs> yes, my that? husband wasn't very keen. Um, and I didn't say yes straight away because I knew I could see just how much work was involved. And I, I was already um, responsible for the Oxford Companion to Wine, which is a great big, thick Significant. Uh, reference book, yes. um, which I'd created from scratch and... I've done uh, four editions of. <sighs> um, but I went to a grammar school, one of these a sort of... Uh, I'm a kind of head girl type, you know, <laughs> put, a, put a, a hurdle in front of me and even if I've got a broken leg, I'll try and pull myself over it. <laughs> uh, so I managed to convince my husband it wasn't a totally terrible idea. Was that... A lie? <laughs> no, I not mean, a it's terrible very, idea, but the work well, that I mean, it involved. Well, Hugh was, you know, offered this jewel of, you know, a a, a very successful book, That's which is to you jolly, more than anything, right? uh, yeah, uh, and all his lovely writing in it. I think I was in at the beginning. I was, I did, didn't like to alter too much because all his sentences right. were so gorgeous. Um, Even with the facts of changed. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Hugh was mentioned this you know, in interviews, you brought in a perspective and a skill set. Yes, a different, um, and, and not, a master of wine background yeah, and all that. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, talk about yeah. taking that and where it took you. Yes. So, I think we juggle, don't we? Because Hugh, I think, would loves giving a sort of impression, and I love ramming facts in. <laughs> so we, we, we have to strike a balance. And I think, but as I say, you know, if someone sees a beautiful sentence in the book, it's, it's probably Hughes. Right. Um, whereas I'm busy putting in the information, which, of course, takes a lot of time. It, it's a solid two years to update and this. Yeah. there may have been a time you did a lot of it on your own. Now you have a significant amount of people helping you, which just shows... Yeah. What it takes to get yes. something like this done. But of course you need you, you need just one person to make the decisions about how you interpret what right. the consultants are saying. And some of them sort of slightly maybe over enthusiastic about their uh patch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about so the beautiful thing about a new edition of a book, especially a book like this. Um Tell me about 
the updates since the, we talked how the wine landscape has changed mm -hmm. and I have a feeling a lot of what we discussed are in the updates but you know if people have multiple editions and they pick this up well it's terror it's so depressing when someone says yeah yeah, I've got that. I've got the third edition. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the supreme compliment, by the way. So. No, I mean, even the seventh edition is way, way mm -hmm. out of date now. We've got um, and 20 new maps. six, eight years ago? Six and years ago. Yeah. And, and that's how rapidly the wine world's been changing. Uh, yeah. yeah. So 20 new maps. So you added maps. Yeah. Um, completely rewrote the introductory introductory sections because I think weather has become just yeah. Yeah. such a it's powerful force. It's broken down into yeah. chapters. Yeah. Um, we've sort of rationalized things. We've pulled things. I like poor old Brazil and Uruguay get their own coverage now rather than just being little right. paragraphs in the introduction to South America, for instance. And then within regions like California, now, mm. the St. Helena gets a page. Exactly, or yes. And uh, not before time, really. We mm. we used to put um, Israel and Lebanon tactlessly on the same they're page. They're vibrant wine-making yeah, countries. They're now right? separate. Um, British Columbia, instead of being subsumed into the Canadian introduction, certainly mm. deserves its own coverage now. Now, Hugh, how do the... How do the maps change? They've been updated, right? Oh, I yeah. mean, the addition well, of wineries and there may and even be And even just some the change, area of vineyards changing changed of the area. enormously. Yeah. So yeah. that's all everything up has to, to current. Be, oh, yeah, everything has to be checked. And I freely admit 50 years later that my first editions were a bit approximate. <laughs> <laughs> now you can confess that? Okay. Cancel those sales. Should have waited until you hit 5 million, but that's okay. <laughs> So all that, everything's been changed to where it needed to be. Yes, it's, it's, it's the details, it's the additions, it, um, but it's also the whole, um, the, the attitude, you know, Jancis is speaking for the year 2020, um, and uh, I can't say that I do, really. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, More than so, you think. Some poor person in the Foreign Rights Department had to go through and work out how many new words there were for the, from the point of view of... Really? Because it's, it's been translated into 14 languages mm. so far, I think. We've already sold the rights to about seven, I think, mm. seven countries, with the biggest orders to date from Korea. Really? Um, Who would have guessed? Yes. So that means it's an emerging yeah. market as yes. far as interest. Very right? interesting, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I think this person has, has calculated that there are four, something like 45% of the words and... And new, completely new. Wow! So that's that is that's, a major that revision. Is a revision. Yeah. So this this is a um, this is a fair question to ask both of you because you're prolific writers. How is it different writing an atlas than uh, other books? Is the companion similar or not? Either no, you're very constrained in terms of space. The com the Oxford companion you For can words. more or less just yeah you, yes. So and and the, and the words are determined by um, sometimes the shape of the wine region, yeah. you know, and whether it sprawls kind of diagonally across the page and only leaves you with yeah. two little chunks of text. There's or whether it no room to spin anecdotes. and no. you know, So typically you have a lot to say yeah. about that yeah. page you and, you it put it and you have to... And yeah. That's mm. harder than writing it yeah. sometimes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's already such a big book. I mean, it's it's 416 pages now. 
Um, and of course, it's, the it's publishers. It's gorgeous. Um, so there's a lot of wine reference books out there. Yes. That's another thing. When we talked about the changing landscape, yeah. there's probably more wine books. Well, than when ever. you did the Atlas, um, how many? How, there was a, just a tiny, tiny handful of wine reference books, weren't there? If that. Yes. In I mean, 1971. It was, it was not. Uh, one of the big things in bookstores at all. I, I think and funnily enough, it really isn't now. There was a there was a climax when all bookstores had to have shelves of drinks books of various kinds. Right. Now you go into the same bookstore, you've got quite a few shelves of cookbooks, but the wine and drinks department is largely cooked cocktails now. Right. It's it's next to the cooking department. Yeah. Um, but I've seen a lot of writers writing books on how to drink wine or what to look for. That's a big topic now. So the, their take and their experience on how you should do it. Um, it's, it's, it's opinionated and all that. Um, well, I made a little video way back in the 80s because there was nothing really on, on how to handle a wine, which was the title of my video. And I managed to get a rather sort of Hollywood cast together with some good actors um, and we made this sort of 25-minute video at home using our home as a studio. I bet you if you watched it now, it's still great. And it, it, it still works. I'm it's sure. still, still out there. <laughs> right, so with all these reference books out there, um, here's your sell pitch. Why should people buy this book? And that's really not the gist of the question, but what's the best way to use it? If I buy it, obviously, you know, I'm going to leave it on the coffee table with my other books, but when am I going to go to it? When do I need it? When should I use it? When is it best served? Well, both before you go to a wine store and afterwards, I would say. Okay. I mean, it is a very practical guide, it really is. And increasingly so, because Jancis does... Uh, in, in my early editions, I illustrated wine labels to give you an idea of what it would look like when you found it. Um, and they tell you a lot about the region. But uh, in this edition, no labels. It's, it's in the text. And Jance is, is, in many cases, uh, telling the reader who the most reliable or the most go-ahead we only map. Are. We only put on the map producers that we rate or really enormous producers that you couldn't possibly... You know, very important ones that you couldn't possibly yeah. ignore. But... Uh, even if we don't have the, the labels, we do. There's a kind of qualitative uh, implication in in each map of, of who we put there, and a massive amount of work is done by the the um, editorial team to make sure that the gazetteer and the index list everyone and everything and place mentioned. So you get your wine label, and you'll find a, probably several words on each on that wine label that you are in the index or the gazetteer that you can then relate to a map and see the one spot on the globe that's mm. responsible for the, the wine in your glass. And wine is one of the very, very few things that you can identify just from the label right. exactly where and, and who to your produced point, it. The mm. book is now full mm. of labels, but mm. at the beginning mm. yeah. there's a page on how to read the how label, to read a label, which yeah. is really the guidebook to what you're saying. Yeah. Every, every map has a grid reference, has, has a grid on it, so, I mean, if I'm writing about a wine and I say it's Chateau X, and I'll just put in brackets afterwards, page 271, right. A5. And then go straight to the page, and there it is. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with it, and you look at the maps, and you said that the vineyards are on it. 
if you are traveling or you're interested, you open, take Napa. Mm -hmm. Those are the significant, important wineries mm -hmm. updated. And significant vineyards we, yeah. we try yeah. to map, yeah. yeah. You know, through your lens and, you know, beyond in a way. Um, all right, so that's the um, eighth, I forgot the name of the book. No. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's the eighth edition of the World Atlas of Wine. We'll talk about it at the end of the show because I want to do our wine list. But that's available wherever you can get books. Online, the big online guys support your local bookstores. Um, it's out. It came out this month. Um, so look out for that. Um, before we wrap up, I want to subject you to, to my wine list. And what it is is I ask all my guests. They don't escape the room without <laughs> answering these five <laughs> questions. And the beautiful thing is, is that people are very interested you know, what you drink, personal and all of that. So I have five questions. Each one of you give me a quick answer. You don't have to dwell on it. Um, we'll see where it goes. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? That's in the context of what are you trying, what's on your table, what's in the fridge, do the seasons change and push you to things. So what are you drinking now, Hugh? English sparkling wine. Okay. It's, it's having a, it's more a than a real, moment, but it's... It's a real discovery. I mean, I... I they won't like me if I say that I've dialed back on my champagne, but it's perfectly true. You know, I, a few, but you came up with a reason why. <laughs> um, can you give me a, a maker or two that you're enjoying? Oh, most certainly. I mean, the, the best known is Nightimbo. N-Y-E-T-I-N. N-Y-E. Ridgeview is very well established at a good sort of steady level, not the ultimate. I particularly like Digby. Uh, which uh, I will confess uh, my son exports and it's okay. available right here in the States. I but I just love it. Know, drinking it last night. Uh, I, I could name 12. Those are good. And I, I didn't say it, but I will post all the answers on our social media site so that people besides listening to the show will see it posted. Chances, what are you drinking now? Well, I taste such a wide variety of of wines always and at the moment when we're traveling around launching the atlas we're often accompanied by a whole array of wines from very exotic places just to demonstrate the the wide reach of the atlas but yesterday was our 38th wedding anniversary and we celebrated after uh, an event at italy um with a, a nice late dinner at Maialino. So it was a very Italian evening. Nice, they have a nice list there. Yeah. Um, and we went, Walter Speller is the Italian specialist on JancisRobinson.com. And I asked him what he would suggest. And we went for a, a Cesanese from Lazio. Very, wow. I know that it's Piemonte that's chiefly <laughs> featured. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was that was really interesting. Very good. That's yeah. a good long time since you've been allowed to drink Bordeaux, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, each one of you, if you have a favorite wine and food pairing. Not something you eat every month, night, but is there something that just when you have it, it's... For me, New York is all about oysters. I think you have the world's best oysters. Oysters uh, and... Chablis. Champagne. Okay. Chablis. 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 Not champagne. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about you? I'm not the world's greatest food pairer. I, I do. I think we have in our brains an invisible computer that sort of says, if I feel like eating this, then my choice right. of wine will mm. kind of 
match will go okay. Um, but that's I, a fair answer. Then. I think it does. You don't work. have to yeah. manufacture an answer then. I'll, <laughs> okay, I'll let you off. <laughs> Thank on that. you. Um, Actually, I, I'll, I'll add a rider to that. Go ahead. Uh, the the Greek white grape Assyrtiko, and especially the wines from Santorini, are a magic match for seafood of all kinds to me. In fact, yesterday that's what I was. Um, I agree. Drinking with my Wellfleet. <laughs> at least in New York. In New yeah, York, yeah. the availability um, at stores, at restaurants, mm. at the right restaurants, it pairs well with food. And there are some great, you know, makers. Mm. This is an easy question for most people and maybe a little harder for you, not for what you think. But I ask people their favorite wine <laughs> restaurant and or bar and it's in the context of who has the selection, the environment, the education. That's a fun place to go to. Um, Jan, since you were at Tawar last night, that's, you know, a good yeah. wine bar. But, yeah. but tell me, does anything come to mind? And I don't want you to have to dig too deep, nor be exclusive, you know, where you bump into somebody and go, why don't you mention my restaurant? But is there anything that's just been doing it right, anyone? My last visit to New York was three years ago. Okay. So you this, know, I, you were, the last time you were here was three years ago. It was. I'm okay. afraid. Yeah. And I'm you know I'm not in anywhere an authority. I'm lucky enough to be taken to indicated to great places. How about in London? Well, I'm <laughs> plug plug for <laughs> for Will Landers restaurants. <laughs> no, our son has has four restaurants, but you've been nice enough about. JancisRobinson.com. You don't have to go by one of our Jancis Robinson's no. progeny. So, Will, your son, yeah. Yeah. He's, has, a he's on his fourth restaurant. Yeah, he's got four restaurants and a wine bar and a food shop and butchery, uh, um, which is nice. But I, could, I can tell you that I love coming to New York, and I particularly enjoy the wine lists at Gramercy Tavern and, and Union Square Cafe because I always learn something new from mm. them. I think it's probably... They've got very good wine, what do they call them, wine directors here. We yes. don't have wine directors, yes. do we? We just have songs really, and wine, really. yeah. But they're probably partly because you just have a different array of wines available. But I, I always discover something new that we don't see in the UK. I think you see, I might have said Union Square Cafe, but I wouldn't have been sure that it was still in business because I remember they from actually, 20 years ago. <laughs> they actually had to move. The landlord mm. wanted the space mm. back. I mean, who would throw a Union Square Cafe? And he moved a couple of blocks away, <laughs> and they're up and running and as terrific as, as ever. And Danny Meyer very much focuses on wine and how important it is to mm. the food and to the program. Um, Fourth question, favorite all-time wine? I used to ask this question, and the answer expectation was the rarest, most expensive, whatever, 61 Petrus. It's morphed into a wine that has become important or timely or had a story. So is there a wine that's important to you or a favorite? Well, yes, because one's where I've been involved in, in their creation. I mean, Talk about them. The, the, the most... To me, the clearest is Tokai, because it, it, after the, the, common, the uncommunist revolution in 1989, um, I realized, uh, as a historian, for one thing, that there was only one of the world's really great wines was stuck behind the Iron Curtain, and that was Tokai. So with uh, winemaker friend Peter Vinding, uh, we said to each other, what, what can we do? The vineyards are there, the people are there, the grapes are there. It is still great wine. Potentially, uh, 
let's go and see what we can do. It, it was um, 30 years later. It is just getting sorted out. Working with ex-communists is not very jolly. Uh, <laughs> but nice yes, thing and that is, is a very special place. And I'll mention one other. This is sort of advertising um, in a way. It's, um, I was lucky enough to be a board director of Chateau Latour in Bordeaux for 15 years or something. And I really got a taste for this stuff. <laughs> I guess you have to be a board director to taste enough of their wines. <laughs> Otherwise, you got to be a billionaire or have access. Um, it's truly one of the world's great wines. Um, Jancis, do you? I have an answer to the question. Fair. Um, and I haven't tasted it for a while. Sniff, sniff. And I've also tasted quite a lot of fake versions of it. But... I've tasted two or three examples of Chateau Cheval Blanc 1947 that were clearly genuine and were out of this world. Great year, maybe yeah. one of the best wines yeah. of that vintage. And, and because it's such a famous wine, it's been faked. And, uh, yeah, um, that, the fake story is a whole other yeah. show, yes, yes. which we don't want to get into, yeah. and it's still around us. So a 47 Cheval Blanc. Um, last question help my listeners with this. I think you could uh, handle it. Um, I ask everyone to recommend a wine, best wine, American dollars, 15, 20 bucks. I know you're not experts, but I think you could do that. You can get Actually made in America. No, anything. Uh, okay. Anything. That you will can give retail, me a region. But, you right. could say Muscadet is a yeah. great white value. Go yeah. with, you can give me a maker. What, what, I need a red and a white from each one of you. What is a good you know, value that you're not spending 10 bucks in a supermarket and like my kids in their 20s, they're not spending 50 to a party. Well, so you went straight to a winner with Muscadet. Okay. It was always been undervalued. It's in good so that's and it's better white. than ever. Yeah, what would you say for, ever. right, what yeah, would you say I'm, for a red? Harder. James's is turn. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I was going to say for red... Uh, I think Beaujolais is still underpriced and the quality is going up all the time. It's it's the natural place for people who can no longer afford Burgundy. It's having milk. its moment, which it's is pushing the price a little. It is mm. pushing the price. But the village but it's, level stuff. It's And, and a non-ambitious but well-made Beaujolais can be absolutely lovely, not necessarily one that's trying to be aged for forever. Um, but also, I would... I, would, I, I I have no I have no connection directly with South African wine, but it's always mm. I'm sad that it's so underrepresented here, and those the prices are generally very very good. And I'm good more point. of a fan of South African whites than reds. The so, yeah, so I would mm. I'd put an old vine South African white as my white wine choice. I think um, that is a good um, answer because I do think they're making wines that are not. You know, under definitely under underplayed here so yeah. far. Um, like I said, I will post all those answers. I will organize them and post them. Um, I regret to say we have to wrap up the show. It's been over an hour. Time, huh? at least for me, time yeah. flies when you're having fun. Um, let me do a quick wrap up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, on Instagram at S. Ben Ruby, on Twitter at Ben Ruby. But you can always use the hashtag, The Grape Nation. That's where we will post um, 
the wine list and any other information that was important. Um, this is a chance for us to catch up on the good part of the business end. So the, um, the eighth edition of the Atlas is available everywhere. It's available now, right? Okay. Um, we talked about all the updates and how useful it could be to you, so go out and buy it. Both of you um, do many other things. I want to talk to each of you a second. Chances will start. Um, you have your site. Tell me what else. The companion. Lock well, it all in. <laughs> I spend usually the first at least two hours, often more, uh, keeping chancesrobinson.com up to date. We're crazy. We publish two new articles every day. Completely mad. That is crazy. Yep. And you, you had once referred to that. <laughs> you know, in your writing in the Atlas, she's turning content out. So and, and, that's uh, JancisRobinson.com. Yeah. And what's the purple page? Purple page is, is the members area. Okay. So there's about a third of the articles are free, including okay. lots of stuff under the heading Learn, which is kind of free background stuff. Um, all of the Oxford Companion is on it, actually, for members and all that. The column? So, uh, the, then weekly for the Financial Times, I write. Okay. Um, oh. Then there are these, these book things that... Uh, you wrote it in probably the most important book about grapes and grape variety. Wine grapes uh, Wine with grapes. two co-authors, uh, which Only it, it a few profiles. Years ago, right? Yeah, it came out mm -hmm. in 2012, but right. it's unique, and it's a guide. Another referencing companion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think those are the main. I, I wrote based on a focus group organised by our younger daughter for her then twenty-four-year-old friends uh, about what they wanted to know about wine. I wrote a really slim pocketbook. Well, not paperback. It was in Britain. It's small hardback here from Abrams called the Twenty-Four Hour Wine Expert. With when was this written? Uh, it came out, I think, in about fifteen. 2015, I, would like I think. To see that. I um, that. Yeah, it's just called the 24-hour wine expert, and it's just the essentials of wine. You know, you don't want right. for those who couldn't be bothered going right. very far, but right. a good start. So there's a lot there, Hugh. You still do the pocket companion? Pop the pocket, the annual pocket wine. I oh, have it's scattered it's, through my house seven or eight. It's called <laughs> Hugh Johnson's Pocket Wine Book, right. and when publishers have always said. It's an encyclopedia. Call it one. I said, no, it's not. It's just used book. So <laughs> you don't want it to be perceived as you want it to be more nimble. Yes, and more personal too. And there's yeah. masses, masses in it though. It's but the, uh, the second string to my bow for the last 45 years has been gardening. I've written a big book called The Principles of Gardening. Trees. Uh, trees and uh, my blog, which is called Trad's Diary, T-R-A-D-S Diary. And that I've been nursing for 45 years. Uh, and it's just my thoughts and uh, observations about my garden, your garden, gardens around the world, travels. That's important to you, and, so you yeah, write about yeah. it. I, I think if anyone is interested in that, mm. I've spent some time um, looking at everything. It's, it's great. And then you have, you know, your classic old books, which, you know, wine would be fun to pick up again and read. <laughs> in yes. light of everything that's been going on. Um, anything else? But the, those are the two things. Um, gardening and wine occupy a lot of my time. Okay. All right, so the eighth edition of the uh, Wine Atlas is available now. We had a chance to talk to Hugh and Jancy, so I want to thank you both for spending 
um, time and talking to everyone at the Grape Nation. Um, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and thank you to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. Thank you to our engineer, Jeet, and we'll see you next time. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.